appreciate you bringing to my attention. It's uh, Pastoral Appreciation Month. Somewhere along the way, I think I missed that, which may explain what I should be doing with my staff and I'm not doing. Give a word of appreciation to all who are elders. Hopefully, Pastor Appreciation Month is just like one step above National Lima Bean Respect Day from last, last Sunday, if you remember that. Well, friends, ours is an age of declining confidence, of receding trust in institutions. So take the media, for example, back in 1980. 85% of the public trusted the nation's newspapers. But today, anyone with a phone and a Twitter account can be a political pundit or they can be an investigative journalist. Now that number has dropped to less than one in three that trust the public newspapers. Or think of TV news. It used to be over 50% of the nation trusted the news when they turned it on in the evening. And yet, with the rise of the kind of 24-7 coverage with CNN initially and then Fox News and, and then now even more, the sort of the explosion of social media and some of the latest revelations around Facebook, it perhaps comes as no surprise that less than one in five Americans now trust their news sources. Consider Congress, right? Trust in Congress. That used to be over 50%. Today, perhaps not surprisingly, that number is closer to 15%. Latest sort of squabbles and spats in Congress, perhaps bringing that lower. Friends, we could point to the presidency, to police, to college admissions, even to scientific institutions. Trust in all of them has significantly eroded. And it doesn't seem, sadly, that religious institutions are really faring any better. So whether we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church and the latest revelations out of France this week, or even as Howard was praying for the Southern Baptist Convention, if you've been following what's happening there, our generation is witnessing an erosion of trust. So then I ask, is there anyone or anything that we can genuinely and truly trust in? Any person... Any institution that we can look to that will deal honestly with us, that will speak honestly to us, someone or something that we can entrust our well-being to, our lives to, even our very souls to. Friends, these are the questions I want us to be thinking about as we turn this morning back to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. So if you are just joining us, we're in this study through the book of Isaiah, and, and uh, we're in the southern kingdom right now of Judah, and Judah finds herself in this very precarious position. So the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel has fallen to Assyria, right? The people have been sent off to exile, but Assyria's king died, and during sort of the contentious fight back in Assyria, back in Nineveh, over his succession, King Hezekiah of Judah took that as an opportunity to sort of capitalize on that moment of uncertainty back in Nineveh. And so King Hezekiah led a rebellion. He led a revolt down in Judah. And yet Sennacherib has now secured the throne in Assyria. And Sennacherib is not taking this revolt of Hezekiah's lightly. No, he has sought out revenge and fueled by retribution. Sennacherib and almost 200,000 soldiers march their way through and they now amass in order to crush this opposition in Israel. And so the burning question before the people is this, right? Who will Israel trust in? Is it, are they going to trust in her leaders? Are they going to look to other nations like Egypt? Are they going to look to the Lord? Right? Is there anybody in such times, in such crisis, is there anybody or anything worth trusting in? That brings us to Isaiah 28 to 39 this morning. So I'd invite you to turn there if you haven't already done so. Isaiah 28 through 39. It's 12 chapters. It's a lot of chapters. And I forgot to write down the page number in the Bibles there in the seat backs. Does someone, can someone just tell me what I, where you can find Isaiah 28? 588. Natalie, was that you? Abby, that was you. All right. Thank you, Abby. I like that assertive voice. 588. Isaiah 28. You can pick it up starting there. Now, listen, admittedly, 12 chapters is a lot to cover. So let me just give you a basic overview of these 12 chapters. So chapters 28 and 29, they set up the crisis. 
as we're presented with Israel's foolish leaders, we're presented with their flawed counsel. That's Isaiah 28 and 29. That's the crisis. And then chapters 30 through 33 really lay out two solutions. So chapter 30 and 31 lay out the foolish counsel that placed their faith in Egypt, that counsel that Egypt will rescue them. That's chapters 30 to 31. And then you have a contrast, chapters 32 and 33, where Judah is called to trust in the Lord to deliver them. And then in 34 to 35, you have the two outcomes, right? You can trust in Egypt, you can trust in the Lord. What are the two outcomes? Well, the foolish counsel, right? That's going to incur judgment. Israel will become a desert wasteland. That's chapter 34. Or you can follow the wise counsel. You can lean on the Lord, find salvation in him. And you can have this picture of a beautiful garden toward the end of chapter 35. And so with those options then laid out before the people, in chapter 36, the scenes shifts. And in 36 to 39, those chapters right there, those four chapters, they function as a hinge in the book. And they're really, Isaiah's bringing back, and he's bringing to us sort of the crushing historical realities of what's happening in the life of Israel with Sennacherib and his army amassing on the walls, right? Which path is Hezekiah going to take? What will be Judah's fate? And that's what's going to unfold historically in 36 to 39. And so as we look at these chapters, I just want to consider, I want us to consider these two paths. And I want us to consider them through the two paths of, I think, two dominant characters. And I want us to look at the choices they make, right, the path they take, and where that path leads them. So we're first going to look at the path of Judah. And we're going to do that in the form of Judah and particularly her leaders, which Isaiah gives special attention to. Where do the leaders place their trust? Where is that going to lead the people? And then secondly, after we consider the path of Judah, we want us to consider the path of Hezekiah. Right? Where does Hezekiah place his trust? Where is that going to lead? And what does that mean for us? So those are sort of the two paths we're going to look at and consider. So first, the path of Judah. The path of Judah. So confronted, Judah is once again by this oncoming Assyrian juggernaut, right? They're going to be faced with a decision. Will they turn to the Lord and look to him for help or deliverance? In whom will they trust? Where will they go? So look with me to chapter 30. Jump there to chapter 30, verse 1. The key question is, in whom is Judah going to trust? Chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, Stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. All right, so stop right there. With Assyria amassing on our borders, where does Israel turn? Particularly Judah, where does the southern kingdom turn? Well, they turn to Egypt. They flee and seek an alliance with Egypt, which is rather ironic. Because Egypt, of course, was the nation that once held Judah in bondage. And now Judah would return and go back to Egypt the nation that had formerly enslaved them is now the nation Judah's going to look to in order to deliver them. Not the most natural choice. So why turn to Egypt? Why look there? Look forward to chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 1. Why would Judah seek an alliance with Egypt? 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust, see that theme being picked up again, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So just stop there. Why Egypt? Why do they look to Egypt? Because, verse 1, they trust in chariots, and they trust in chariots more than they trust in the Lord. They would in their own words, rather have horses than the Holy One of Israel. Ironic. Again, think back to the Exodus. How well did all of those horses of Egypt serve Egypt during the Exodus? 
Did those horses and those chariots capture a single Israelite? Did those horses and chariots, did they stop a single Israelite family from leaving Egypt? Did horsemen part the Red Sea? Did chariots provide manna from heaven or water from a rock? Right, spiritually speaking, for Judah to go back to Egypt, that is to functionally commit apostasy. It's to deny the Lord. Chapter 31, verse 3, Isaiah says, The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And yet in this crisis, that's exactly where Judah goes. They turn to Egypt. Friends, I wonder if you understand that instinct of Judah's at all. That instinct that when confronted with a crisis, to sort of grasp at anything for help, like a swimmer who's drowning, right? Just to reach and pull and grab anything they find that might hold them and keep them afloat. Friend, maybe you, you lie to protect a secret. Maybe in a moment of desperation, you take something that you shouldn't. Or you do something out of fear and self-preservation. Right? Israel ran to Egypt and in doing so was running away from the Lord. Friend, I wonder in those moments of desperation, where do you instinctively turn? Where do you go for help? Where do you run? Where do you seek preservation? Where do you look for escape? Is it to the Lord? Or is it just what immediately is tangible? And you think can provide and offer you assistance. I mean, notice where, Jesus, uh, where, rather, where uh, Judah's leaders did not look. Right, 31.1, they did not look or it says they did not consult the Lord. Or back in 30 verse 2, which I read just a minute ago, they set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, the Lord says. So here is Judah pursuing plans, right? These are big plans. These are life-altering, nation-altering plans. And yet they're not committing those plans to the Lord in prayer. They're not bringing them before the Lord. They're not consulting with the Lord in prayer. Friend, I wonder if that ever describes you. Do you ever find yourself rushing into decisions without ever pausing to bring those big decisions before the Lord? Why do you think that is? If you find yourself rushing in decisions without stopping to pray, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because you instinctively assume you know best? Do you assume the Lord has nothing to offer you? Or are you afraid if you don't act now, you might lose this opportunity? Right, Taking time to pray, like waiting, that just might get in the way. I guess I would just ask, how well is that going to turn out for Israel? When they fail to consult the Lord. I, I'll ask you how often when you fail to consult the Lord, when you fail to bring your prayers before him to weigh heavy decisions, to get counsel, how often does that work well for you? How often does it turn out well for you? You know, maybe you're thinking, actually, I've done okay so far. My friend, do you really want to press your luck with God? Prayer is part of how God makes his will known to his people. So when we fail to pray, when we fail to consult the Lord, what we're really saying, God, is we're saying, God, I don't need you. I can live life fine without you. I've got this. Right? I can do this. But prayer is not the only way we seek to consult the Lord. We also consult the Lord by looking to his word, by treasuring that word. And yet this also is what Judah is going to refuse to do. So look back with me at chapter 30, verse 8. Look back with me at chapter 30. Verse 8. And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Just stop right there. Notice, notice the posture of the people. They're like 
children, Isaiah says, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, verse 9. They don't want to be instructed in the way that is right. Rather, let us hear no more, they say, verse 11. And in verse 12, they're going to be described as those who despise the word. It's why Isaiah calls them rebellious people, verse 9. So note this, right? As we're seeing here already in Isaiah, the true mark of human rebellion is the rejection of God's own revelation. You want to know the true measure of one's own rebellion, consider whether or not they reject God's revelation. Right? To hear God's word, to silence it, to ignore it, to refuse to hear any more of it. Judah had effectively put a gag order on the word of God. Right? No more. They don't want to hear any more of it. Friend, I wonder in what ways you might in your own life functionally be doing the very same thing. Putting a gag order on the word of God in your own life. Are there ways that you have silenced God's word in your life? Maybe you pretend when you hear it like you don't hear it. You pretend as if, in fact, when you are confronted with something that God didn't, in fact, say it. Or maybe what is so clear, you try to convince yourself, actually, maybe it says something else. I wonder how you seek to ignore this word, to muzzle the word of God in your own life. Because recognize, you can appear like outwardly to be a perfectly upstanding citizen. You can present as a wonderful neighbor. You can even appreciate religious things. You can even be a member of a church. But if you are quietly rejecting God's word, whether that's out of willful ignorance or whether or not that's out of some kind of settled contempt, God understands you to be in rebellion against him. And the God of the Bible is not one, as we've seen, to be trifled with. He's not one who's going to take such rebellion lightly. So notice what he does. Look with me to 29.10. Chapter 29, verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all that has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one another who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. All right, stop there. So notice the, the prophets and the seers that are being called out, they were the very kinds of people whose very purpose it was to reveal the word of the Lord to the people, to make God's will known, and yet notice they won't do it. Instead, they, they craft their own plans. They seek to hide those plans. If you look down to verse 15, they sought to hide that counsel from the Lord. So they're going to fall in with others, and they're going to resort to sort of backroom political calculations in order to, to meet their pressing needs. And because their leaders have plugged their ears and closed their eyes to God's word, notice the kind of judgment that God places upon them. It becomes like words of a book that is sealed. In effect, he's closing them off to his word. If you remember that, those sort of haunting verses in Amos, I think it's Amos 9, when God's people get a, a famine, but it's not a famine of bread or of water, but it's a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. It's one of the most frightening judgments God can bring. The problem is Judah doesn't seem to care. She only pretends to care. But it's not a relation with God she's really after. Right? Notice God sees right through it, verse 13. This people draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. You know, sadly right there, for so many people, that's what religion amounts to. Verse 13. The ability to know the right things, the ability to say the right things, the ability to walk through all the motions, and yet it's not God they're finally after. It's not God that they finally seek. And in that, their, their lips 
may be experts at professing what their own hearts don't love. And friend, that's the worst kind of hypocrisy to be in that situation of verse 13. And that's a warning to all those who have knowledge about God, but no love for God. For all those who have information about God, and yet they have no conviction, they have no affection for God. This verse is, if that's you, this verse is trying to expose you. It's trying to draw you out. It's trying to make you ask some hard questions about your own heart. You know, Jesus picked up on these very verses that were read for us earlier in the service uh, from Mark chapter 7, right? The Pharisees had made religion all about, right, external matters of saying the right things and doing the right things, even going so far as to add things to law in order to pad their own pockets. They established plenty of traditions, and they held fast to those traditions, even when their very own traditions violated the spirit of the law. And in that, their own lips had become experts at professing what their hearts never loved. Which is why Jesus says to them, you know the command of God and yet you hold to the traditions of men. That right there is the very nature of false religion. Friend, right there, that's actually the worst form of pride. Because at the heart of all false religion is the attempt to make God our servant instead of recognizing that we are his. That's at the heart of all false religion, this this desire and attempt to make God actually our servant. He now serves us, as opposed to understanding we were created in order to serve him. Which is why God will say in chapter 29, verse 14, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul's actually going to grab this very verse in 1 Corinthians 1.19 when he's going to compare the, the wisdom of the word of the cross over and against the folly of the words of men. Friends, where is all this going to lead? For Judah, this prayerlessness, this wordlessness, this godlessness and all of her advisors, where does that lead? 28.14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You see, he's going right at the leaders there in particular. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. Now that covenant with death, that's Isaiah's mocking way of referring to the covenant that Judah's made with Egypt. So the covenant with death they've made, that's his own way of referring to this covenant they've made with Egypt. Because you have said, we've made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. Right When the whip of Assyria comes, they think Egypt's going to protect them. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm, overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge, that is the Assyrians, pass through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. Right? The Lord's saying right there, the covenant they've made with death, this covenant with Egypt, it's going to be the end of Judah. It's going to be the end of so many of the cities. The Lord is saying to trust in power, to look finally for deliverance, to look for everlasting deliverance in anything other than the Lord, he's saying, yeah, that, Isaiah's saying, that's to make a covenant with death. To ignore the Lord, to look to these things, other powers, like that is a covenant with death. My friend, I don't know this morning whom you trust in, who you expect can deliver you this morning. I don't know what institutions, right, you feel like have, have failed you. Maybe you're trusting in your reason, your intelligence. Maybe you're trusting in your wealth. Maybe you're trusting in your, your relative good works. God's saying all those things 
to trust in them like they're trusting in Egypt. That's to make a covenant with death. None of those things, Isaiah says, can finally deliver. None of those things can save you from this God who has made you and who rules over you and will one day come and judge you. But the wonderful news, Isaiah doesn't leave us there, is that actually it's not too late to turn to this one who can save and deliver. And there are these promises of hope that are scattered throughout, promises and encouragements to trust in these chapters. So look at chapter 30, verse 18. Look there to 3018. In the midst of all these warnings, we read in chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon, as soon as he hears it, he answers you. They were called to wait on the Lord. Waiting is what they will not do nonetheless. And though... That is the case. We read right here, the Lord, he is ready to extend mercy to them, to show grace to them. Here is God in his patience, in his mercy, as it were standing on his tiptoes, begging his people to come back to him as one who is gracious and merciful to his people. As soon as he hears, right? he's waiting, as soon as he hears, he will answer. All Judah must do is cry out to him. That's all she must do. If you've come through these doors this morning, you don't identify as a Christian. That's what God is calling you to, to recognize your need, all the ways in which you feel like the world has failed you, and you yourself have failed, and many of the things you've accomplished to do, desire to do, want to do, the way in which you even feel the sin of your own life convict you, God's bringing that conviction He's saying, all right, in the midst of all that, don't keep running to other places. Don't keep looking in other hopes to trust. No, he's saying, come to me. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. You can look to me. You can trust me. And there he would point you to his son on the cross who died as a sacrifice for sinners, for all of those who see their need for a real deliverer, for one who can truly come to the aid of his people. Jesus died on the cross as that sacrifice for sinners and rose again from the grave victorious over sin and death as no one can or has, and this Jesus delivers. And you can turn to him in repentance and faith, and he will deliver you. He can reconcile you to this very good and gracious God. That's the kind of trust that Isaiah would call you to. That's what he's calling Judah to, and yet Judah won't listen. They refuse that's the path Judah chooses, not to heed the encouragements or the warnings. And what happens to Judah? Look forward with me to 36.1. What happens to Judah? Remember I said 36 to 39 function is a bit of a hinge for the book. We've got all the prophecies of Isaiah. And now we're going to turn to sort of what happens to Judah. So, so think of it like this. Judah, they've heard all the sermons, right? They've heard the sermon series. Now Judah goes out on Monday, and what are they going to do? What happens with their decision? They walk out of church. They plug their ears, right? They've made their bed with Egypt. How does that turn out for them? Chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, around 701 B.C., Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and took them. Friends, just like that, one verse. All the fortified cities of Judah are gone. They have been conquered, right? So much for that strategic alliance with Egypt, so much for their aid, so much for all the backroom deals, all the political calculations of the leaders. Look where that got them. Every fortified city is conquered. I don't know if you ever played the board game Risk, but there's that point in every game of Risk 
when one individual is clearly dominating the globe, and maybe you're not that individual, you're the other one, and you're watching every territory shrink until it's finally the very end of the game, and you're left on your single last territory with like your single last little in infantrymen, and you've got like one little dice that you can roll, and the conqueror's got, you know, infantry and cannons and artillery, he's got everything, and roll three dice for like days. You know what happens. You're doomed. Right? Defeat is a foregone conclusion. Friends, that's where Israel is right now. Defeat is a foregone conclusion. All the fortified cities fall. It's just Jerusalem that is left. So much for Judah's path. Right? So much for the wisdom of the world. So much for seeking alliances and making covenants with anyone other than the Lord. That's Judah's path. So secondly, I want us now to consider Hezekiah's path. I want to consider a different path. Hezekiah's path. So what about our king, Hezekiah? Right? Hezekiah, up to this point, he's listened to his advisors, and they have cost him nearly everything. Right? Now he's faced with this impossibly hopeless situation, and where is Hezekiah going to go? What path will he choose? We pick up the story in 36.2. 36.2. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, just sort of the senior military official, royal commander, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secondary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder. Okay, so we've got Hezekiah. We've got the three members of his cabinet, so to speak. They're standing, notice, by the conduit of the upper pool. So that's like the sort of local aqueduct into the city. And we read right over that, but that historical detail is actually not given to us by accident. So you may remember all the way back in Isaiah 7. Isaiah met Ahaz, another king, at that same location, that conduit to the upper pool. And Isaiah pled with Ahaz to trust in the Lord at that same spot. And Ahaz refused. And Ahaz suffered for it. And so here we find ourselves, 35 years later, in the same spot once again. What will Hezekiah do? Will he follow Ahaz's path and the leader's path? Will Hezekiah go a different way? Notice as I read the next verses, so 36, 4 to 9, notice how often you're going to hear that word trust. 36 to 49. 36, sorry, 4 through 9. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king. He doesn't even refer to Hezekiah as king, right? There's one king in the Rabshakeh's mind, one king, the king of Assyria. This is what he's to say to Hezekiah. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. All right, so just notice again that key theme of trust. On what do you rest this trust of yours? That's the question that Rabshakeh puts to Hezekiah in verse 4. Friend, that's the central question. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In many ways, that's not just the central question of this passage. It's the central question thus far of Isaiah. In many respects, that right there is the key question to life. On what do you rest your trust? And so when the Rabshakeh says in verse 10, The Lord said to me, 
I know it's a little confusing. Maybe he's just taunting them, pretending the Lord has spoken to them. Or maybe he actually knows about Isaiah's own prophecies. Maybe he knows about all the warnings. Maybe he's bringing that to their mind. They have not followed and obeyed the Lord. It's, it's hard to know. But I think part of what makes his speech so persuasive, and Hezekiah's cabinet's going to say to him, listen, don't speak in Hebrew. Like, speak in Aramaic. Because they don't want the city to hear what he's saying because it's a frightening thing. And there's much truth in what he says. And part of that, part of what makes his speech, I think, so persuasive is precisely because there is so much that is true in what he says. They are trusting in this broken reed of a staff referred to as Egypt. And it is true that Israel, right, Judah's got no riders. They have no cavalry. At this point, right, it's the end of the game of risk. They have no hope. But the basic premise is false. The premise that the Lord has forsaken his people, that he's abandoned his people, and therefore to trust the Lord, that that's futile, that basic premise is false. My Christian friend, it is always Satan's way to make, well, at least often, let me put it like that, it is often Satan's way to make us think that God has abandoned us. And then Satan's going to use logic woven from half-truths in order to convince us of that, that God has abandoned us, that he's turned on us. When Satan can convince us of that, he has won. Look to verse 16, where the Rabshakeh says, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own wine, each one of you his own fig tree, each one of you will drink water from his own cistern. And then he's going to go on, and he's going to talk about all that they can have as if exile is such a beautiful thing. But that's what he's presenting. Friend, isn't that just like Satan? To tempt one to come and to take and to eat and so turn their back on God. He's playing the part of the tempter right here. We're being right back, drawn right back into that original garden and that original sin. That is how Satan so often works. Tempting us to doubt God, to disbelieve God's words are true. That God's will for his people and for you is in fact good. Friend, I wonder where in your life you are tempted to believe these very same lies where you're tempted to believe them? Where in your life are you tempted this morning to doubt God, to disbelieve God, to distrust Him, that His plans are good, that His purposes are wise, that your hope in Him actually can be secure? Because we're always tempted to doubt that. But notice what Hezekiah does in 37.1. As soon as he hears all of this, 37.1, what do we read? That he went into the house of the Lord. Well, note that right there. Here, Hezekiah is doing what Judah and the leaders did not do. He's consulting the Lord. Right? The reality right here, by the time we get toward the end of chapter 36, the reality is that the Lord had brought Judah to the end of herself. He had brought Judah to that point of utter hopelessness and despair. He had removed from her at this point every possible source of strength. Everything she could hope in, everything she could grab to and trust in, that is gone. Why? So that she might learn to trust in him and lean upon him. My friend, God will often bring you to the end of yourself in order to show you himself. And when he does that, that is actually his kindness. That's God and his patience and love. Now, you can choose to fight that when everything is stripped from you. You can choose to fight it. You can become angry about it. You can kick and scream. You can retreat in self-pity. Those are all natural responses we have in our sin. Or in those moments when you are stripped of everything, you can instead lift your eyes up to your maker and cry out to the one who we've seen is gracious and is willing and is waiting to save his people. And he's right there in the same position with Judah now. And not only does 
Hezekiah consult the Lord, but he's going to send those cabinet members back out to Isaiah to the Lord's prophet. So Hezekiah here is praying in the Lord's house, sending the cabinet to Isaiah, right? The Lord's prophet, the one who brings the word of the Lord. So notice he's praying and wants to hear the word, which again, Judah was not doing. It's quite the reversal of those leaders. And notice what Isaiah says in 37 verse 5. Notice what he says. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, that is Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Well, that's a pretty amazing prophecy. What does Hezekiah do at this point? Does Hezekiah say, well, man, that's great. Let's kick back and relax. I'll grab a lawn chair, put it up on the walls, wait for it all to unfold. No, what does he do? Verse 15, he turns again to prayer. And look at Hezekiah's prayer in 37, 16. Hezekiah prays, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Friends, that's a prayer. You want to know how to pray? Just pick that up and reflect on exactly what Hezekiah has done. Right? He has been here. He's shown his persistence in prayer. He knows the future. Isaiah has already prophesied it. And yet that doesn't keep him from passivity. No, he keeps praying. Though he knows the future, he prays God would be true to his word and remain true to his word. And then notice his prayer, like all good and right prayers, it begins with God and it ends with God. He rightly confesses, recognizing who God is. He's the one who is enthroned in the cherubim, right? He's the one who rules and reigns and has made all things. And notice that he also on that basis implores this God to hear and see and listen. Though Judah has not heard and seen and listened to the Lord, he knows the Lord is waiting and gracious and will see and hear. And he confesses his utter need. And notice that plea of salvation. What's his reason as he begs the Lord to act? Does he say, listen, act because you know we deserve it? Does he say, no, listen, act because you know we've been faithful? Because actually, God, we're going to get serious now and we're really going to live better. We're really going to get committed now. So act on our behalf. Or does he say, hey, listen, act on our behalf because, you know, we want the good life. We want to live the fulfilled life, the prosperous life. No, verse 20, save us from his hand, Sennacherib's hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Right? He prays for deliverance so God can be worshipped. That's the purpose and the result behind his prayer. Friend, at the heart of every genuine Christian is this concern, not for our name, but for his name. It's not our fame, it's God's fame. It's not our glory, but his glory. You find a Christian who's concerned with that, that's a genuine Christian right there. They get what it means to live for God. Because Christianity is not fundamentally how we can better our lives. It's not how we can realize our full potential. Christianity is not finally about me or you or us. It's about how we have been freed by God to make much of him. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about me. So what happens? 
Sennacherib has picked the fight with the wrong guy. Right? Sennacherib has punched way above his weight class. He's about to find out. God will come to the defense of his people. Look to 3736. 3736. This is poem of Sennacherib's fall. There's this claim in 35 that God's going to defend his city and save it for the sake of his servant David. And then we read in 3736, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. As he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after that, they escaped into the land of Ararat. And, well, another name I can't quite pronounce. His son reigned in his place. Friends, what I want you to notice, it takes one verse. That's it. Just one verse for God to deliver his people. Just two verses to describe Sennacherib's end. And notice his end is just as Isaiah had prophesied. He'd go back to his land and he would fall by the sword. That's exactly what happens. And what was Judah's role in this great deliverance? What part, what glorious part did Judah play? None. They slept and the Lord saved. Time and time again, friends, that is what we see. God fights our victories for us. Whether it's that first Passover in Egypt, whether it was there at the Red Sea, whether it was God defeating Dagon in his own temple, or here in Isaiah, or Jesus at the cross, we make no contributions to our own salvation and deliverance. It is God's work from beginning to end, and he does it without us. And yet, for all of this, the story ends on a somber note. If you've read it, you know in chapter 38, Hezekiah becomes sick. He appears destined for death. He prays to the Lord. The Lord grants him a reprieve, 15 years. And yet the sense you still get, yeah, 15 years are great, but he's still a mortal man. He's still going to die. And then an envoy from Babylon comes, and they come to celebrate this miraculous recovery. And at this point, Babylon and Judah, well, that seems strange that Babylon would come, but they're distant allies because they share that common enemy at this point is Syria. But notice when this envoy from Babylon arrives, notice what Hezekiah does. Look at 39.2. 39.2. When this envoy arrives, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house. The silver and gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So notice, Hezekiah could have taken this opportunity with this great envoy from Babylon to tell Babylon all about his Savior. But instead, he's like, hey, look at my personal treasure. Look at all my stuff. It appears that pride of self-sufficiency, of vainglory, it fears that pride has once again taken root. Notice he refers to his treasure. Not talking about the Lord's. This is his treasure. This is his armory. This is his house, he says. As if all of this is of his making and of his own doing. And so the scene closes in 39, 6-8. Isaiah will say to him as a consequence, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Eunuchs so that they can't carry on the royal line. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. What a brutal way to end. This whole section, you end like that. Friend, that is a tragic picture of one who escapes from the pit only to fall into the snare. Remember that's what Isaiah said would happen in 24? It's a tragic reminder 
that when we put our trust in anything other than God, whatever that thing is, that thing will turn us and it will turn on us and it will betray us and it will destroy us as Hezekiah will do for them. So friends, it looked like we're presented with two different paths, right? You got Judah and her leaders who trusted in horses, not the Holy One of Israel. That didn't work out so well. Then Hezekiah, and Hezekiah shows such initial promise. He's turning and he's trusting in the Lord. And yet ultimately, Hezekiah's paths would swerve. And it appears the path of Hezekiah and Judah and her leaders, they all kind of converge. It looks just like the same path. You know, at that point, it's easy to be disillusioned, right? At that point, we feel that erosion of trust when our leaders fail to deliver, whether or not they're kings or politicians or institutions. Friends, perhaps our own day is not that much different than Judah's day. Perhaps that's all meant to teach us something, that perhaps our trusts are misplaced. Perhaps they're misplaced. Hezekiah, it turns out, was not finally the king that Judah needed. They're going to have to wait for another king, one whose words will run, rather, who in the words of 32.1. So chapter 32.1 refers to this king of righteousness, a king that's coming, 32.1, a king of righteousness, or whose reign in 32.15 is described as one whose result will be the spirit being poured out from on high, one whose kingdom, in the words of 35.5, will see the eyes of the blind opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Friends, it's going to be a long wait before they encounter that king. But if you remember the scene from Matthew 11, when the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus, and they're confused because they had a lot of hope, and now they're not so certain in Jesus. And they basically say to him, hey, um, are you the one? Are you the one that Isaiah prophesied about? Or should we look for another? And you remember what Jesus said, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Friend, in an age of eroding trust, when it's unclear if anyone will be honest with us, will fight for us, will be able to save and deliver us, Isaiah is preparing us for Jesus, the only one worthy, finally, of our trust. Friends, is he yours? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would expose by your spirit, even now, ways in which we are not trusting you as we ought to, ways in which we look to the world. Lord, we look to individuals, institutions. Lord, we look to, to things, to people. Well, Lord, we look to anything so often other than you to rest there. And God, we pray that if you are stripping us of those things, that we would see that as your grace and kindness and that that may drive us back to you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.